0: This is a CBC podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, February the 11th, on CBC Radio. Canadian telecoms are in flux between big layoffs at Bell and big shakeups at Rogers. First up, we'll explore what it all reveals about a high stakes industry that affects us all. After that, from puberty to menopause, it is a regular part of life for half the population. But as Dr. Jen Gunter will tell us, there's still much that we get wrong about menstruation, and she's out to change that. And later on, key decisions and considerable dysfunction marked the week that was in American politics will help make sense of what it all means in the run-up to November's election. And later on, journalist Morgan Campbell shares his experience growing up Black in Canada with a family that has deep American roots and how that upbringing has shaped his incisive sports writing. It all starts right now on The Sunday Magazine. The Prime Minister calls it a, quote, garbage decision by Canada's largest telecommunications company. And Justin Trudeau was not mincing words when he was asked about Bell Canada's announcement that it is cutting 4,800 jobs. Canadians need
0: to demand better, as we will be demanding better from corporate leaders, like in this case, Bell, that are eroding Canadians' ability to know each other to trust each other and to trust in the country and the future we are building together. So yeah, I'm pretty pissed off about what's just happened.
1: BCE says the job cuts are across all levels of the company, including shutting down 100 source stores, selling off 45 radio stations, cancelling dozens of CTV local newscasts. And it comes at a time when one of Canada's other telecom giants has been undergoing dramatic change. The family feud and legal battle for control of Canada's largest wireless carrier, Rogers, has finally been settled. Not everyone, of course, is satisfied. Alexandra Posadsky covers the telecom industry for The Globe and Mail. She has a new book out. It is called Rogers v. Rogers, The Battle for Control of Canada's Telecom Empire. Alexandra's here. Good morning.
2: Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. It's nice
1: to have you here. And uh, we are going to talk about Rogers, but it's important we talk about um, Bell Media first. So this announcement at the end of uh, this past week, uh, 9% of its workforce, 4,800 jobs. This comes just a few months after another major cut uh, at Bell. What's going on? Why are things so difficult at Bell right now?
2: Well, what Bell is saying is that the primary driver for these uh, job cuts that they've announced are actually a regulatory decision from the CRTC, that's Canada's telecom regulator, uh, which is essentially requiring Bell to open up uh, its new um, fiber to the home network to uh, resellers or wholesale-based competitors uh, before they've had a chance to recoup the billions of dollars that they've invested into building out that infrastructure. Um, But that's not the only, you know, headwind facing Bell. You know, they also have declining revenues from their legacy home phone business. And, of course, uh, the media business um, is dealing with low advertising revenues.
1: Except if you look at B.C.'s profits, $691 million in profit last year, up from the previous year. And as you say, the company says it has to restructure because of, quote, difficult economic and regulatory environment. So so, so square that more for me when we see those profits, and yet you have a company saying, look, we're in tough fiscal times.
2: Right. So BC is a public company. And, um, you know, they have decided that they're going to uh, increase their dividend by about 3%. And so um, I think that factors into, you know, your cost base um, when you're expected to pay a certain amount of money back to your shareholders. Okay.
1: And then the other thing you talked about was regulation. Is the way um, telecoms are regulated in our country, I know this is always a hot button political issue, of course, is it affecting companies' bottom lines? Is that a fair assessment? Because that's what, like, Bell is saying.
2: Well, what's interesting is that this decision that they're talking about hasn't actually come into effect yet. It's going to come into effect in May. Um, Bell has actually gone to uh, the federal cabinet asking them to overturn the CRTC. Um, So we're not necessarily seeing the outcome of that particular decision yet. Um, But of course, like, Telecom is a very highly regulated industry, and so you do have um, regulations that do, of course, impact profitability uh, of companies.
1: I appreciate you're not a political reporter, but when you saw the prime minister come out on, I think it was Friday, um, that clip that we played from his press conference, he was clearly not pleased. Um, Balance for us the the sort of political um, regulatory environment with we see these private companies who, again, are making like a lot of profit. Like, Where do you see that dynamic?
2: I mean, it's a really interesting situation, right, because these are publicly traded companies. Um, They're, you know, owned by investors. Um, Most of us probably in our pension funds in some way, shape, or form own a chunk of these companies. They also have other stakeholders, uh, customers, right? We're all customers of a telecom uh, in in some variety. Um, And then also... What's really important to keep in mind is that these companies have been entrusted with um, this valuable public resource, which is Spectrum, right? The licenses to use the airwaves that are used to transmit wireless services. And so you do have this kind of interesting dynamic where you have Uh, shareholders who are expecting a certain level of profitability, and then you have customers who are expecting a certain level of service, and then you've got, um, you know, politicians and and regulators. And so these companies kind of occupy this very interesting space as a result of that.
1: If you're just joining us here on the Sunday Magazine, I'm Pia Chattopat. I'm speaking with Globe and Mail telecom reporter Alexandra Posadsky who has a new book out. It's about Rogers. So let's talk about um, Rogers, the largest wireless uh, company in our country. Um, Just to remind our listeners about sort of the ongoing saga that was playing out. Um, Many people were making these analogies to the TV show Succession where siblings were infighting for control of the family business. Set this up for us.
2: Kind of take us back. What is this feud about? Sure. So it really kind of starts with the death of Rogers Communications founder Ted Rogers. And uh, Ted and his wife Loretta had four children. Uh, The eldest was Lisa, followed by their only son Edward, followed by Melinda and then Martha. Um, And so after Ted's passing, you know, the company has been through a number of CEOs and, you know, kind of struggling to define itself in the wake of, you know, the passing of the founder who was really this huge force within the company, right? People used to joke that there was no decision at Rogers too small for Ted to make. And so that's always a challenge for a company when you have this founder who's so deeply enmeshed in the culture, in every aspect of the company, and now he's gone. And so what does that sort of mean for the company? So you saw, you know, a couple of CEO changes and the most recent one where, you know, this conflict really erupted. Uh, happened during the reign of Joe Natale uh, and, you know, how the conflict really began was Edward had decided he was not happy with Joe Natale's performance as CEO and that he wanted to replace him with the CFO, Tony Staffieri. Um, It all kind of seemed to be going according to plan at first. And then um, something shifted. And we saw, you know, the board essentially decide that they wanted to retain Joe Natale. And uh, we saw Tony Staffieri fired. And that's when the story kind of broke.
1: There's a lot of characters in this um, with Big personalities. Um, so let's kind of just go back to January because I think that's when like two of the major figures in this story—these are two of the sisters, two of the siblings—Melinda Rogers Hickson uh, and Martha Rogers—announced that they're stepping down from the Rogers board. And that seems their resignation seems to have put to an end to this this years-long feud between them and Edward, their brother. So tell me more about these these sisters and, and brother.
2: Sure. So Lisa, as the oldest, was the first one to sort of enter the family business, and then she ended up not sticking around in the family business. She moved out to Victoria. Um, Edward uh, followed Lisa's footsteps into kind of joining the business, and he worked his way up, and he ended up becoming the president of Rogers Cable. So he was always kind of seen as the heir apparent, right? The oldest son. This was who would inherit his father's kingdom. Um, but, you know, Melinda also was, you know, very bright and working her way up through the company. She has an MBA from Rotman, um, and she was always kind of focused on the strategic side. So she said that she never really wanted to be the CEO. She liked working with smaller companies. She spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley. Um, and then we have Martha, who's the youngest sibling. Um, she never really like meaningfully, um, engaged in roles in the company. She did do a couple of, um, uh, stints uh, within Rogers kind of you know in school during the summers a little bit after but she pursued a career as a naturopathic doctor um, she did uh, occupy a seat on the board however um, and so that's kind of the cast of characters
1: and so when Ted Rogers the patriarch of the family's around the siblings are all sort of like everyone's playing their pro- proper roles everyone's kind
2: of getting along as far as we can tell, I mean, within the company, there was always this kind of perception of a rivalry between Edward and Melinda.
1: Okay. So then he, Ted Rogers' father dies in 2008. And then, as you said, the battle over control for the, for the control of the company really kicks off in 2021 when Edward tries to replace the company CEO with Joe Natale. And as you say, Alexandra, you couldn't really write this any better. This all starts with a butt dial.
2: It all kind of unravels as the result of a, I should mention, a disputed butt dial because, you know, of course, not everybody agrees that the uh, inadvertent phone call took place.
1: Tell me about the phone call.
2: Oh, man. So this was, I think, such a fascinating story for a lot of people. It's really what got a lot of readers' attention. Um, What I learned was that, um, you know, Joe Natale uh, is at home and he decides he's going to call his CFO, Tony Staffieri. um, And he calls him and their phones are connected. But I guess Staffieri doesn't realize that he had answered the call and left the line open. And um, this is according to Joe Natale's camp. And uh, according to his version of events, Tony is uh, sitting with a guy named David Miller, who is the company's former general counsel, and he's talking about what he will do, what what changes he will make to Rogers when he imminently becomes the CEO. Mm. Um, And so this obviously uh, comes as kind of a shock to Joe. Um, So that's kind of where the story sort of where things sort of start to unravel for the plan. Now, of course, on the other side, uh, people uh, close to Tony have kind of questioned whether or not the call really took place. They think that Joe made the whole thing up essentially to cover for having learned about the plan through some other means. Okay, so there's maybe a plan afoot to how it happens. We
1: don't know. But then Edward does what he tries to oust Natalie at the board of directors that fails, right? And then Uh, Edward gets voted off the board.
2: In a nutshell, what happens is um, you know Joe goes to the directors. He goes to Edward. He kind of confronts everybody about this. Um, he meets with Edward uh, and John McDonald, the company's lead independent director, and he says that he wants to fire Tony Staffieri because he doesn't trust him. And Edward tells him not to blame Tony because it's not Tony's plan; it's Edward's plan, <laughs> and that he would be willing to work with him on a fair um, severance package, essentially. And so you know those discussions are underway. The board meets, they vote on a resolution um, and uh, well, actually, they don't initially vote on a resolution. They kind of discuss everything. They do end up voting on a resolution that's, um, you know, on the terms of Joe's departure, uh, but they don't uh, immediately vote on Tony becoming the CEO. Um, And then they decide to reconvene several days later. And it's during those days later that two of the Rogers family members, that is the Rogers family matriarch, Loretta Rogers and uh, Martha Rogers, end up kind of no longer deciding to support Edward's plan. Hmm. In the end,
1: Edward comes out on top. Um, Tony Staffieri becomes CEO. Has his family reconciled? Has there been been a reconciliation between Edward and his siblings? Um,
2: Well, there is a settlement that has been reached between the two sides of the family. Uh, The terms of the settlement are confidential, so we don't exactly know um, know, what they've agreed on in terms of any monetary aspect of it. Uh, But what we do know, obviously, as you've referenced, is that Melinda and Martha have uh, left the board of Rogers communications. And um, so you know, you could kind of take from that what you will. You
1: have no idea if these guys even talk these siblings talk to each other how what that relationship's like.
2: At this point, um it's hard to say.
1: You talked about the Rogers Board of Directors. There's also Rogers control trust. Do we need what do we need to understand about the differences between these two things?
2: So the Rogers Control Trust is the kind of vehicle through which the Rogers family exerts their control over the company. And so um, Rogers has a dual class share structure, which means there's two classes of shares. There's the class A shares, which come with 50 votes each. And these are you know votes to elect directors, for instance. And then we have the class B shares, which come with no votes. And so if you're sort of a public shareholder of Rogers, you probably have one of these class B shares, which comes with no voting control. Um, 96, of the class A voting shares are held within these trusts that are all controlled by the Rogers Control Trust. And Edward is the chair of the Rogers Control Trust. So that essentially makes him the controlling shareholder of Rogers, and it gives him the ability to replace directors. What does this
1: family feud that now at least legally is settled tell you about this company?
2: I mean, I think one of the reasons why this story is so important is because we do have a lot of these kinds of dual class share structure companies in Canada. And as all of this was unfolding, a lot of people were watching this because seeing this big kind of public family spat Um, unfold the way in which it did is kind of a worst case scenario for dual class share structures, right? You had all of this happening and it was essentially a fight over control. And uh, what ended up happening in the end is the BC court, this all landed in BC court and the BC court ended up sanctioning a move by Edward Rogers to replace five of the company's directors without holding a shareholder meeting. Mm. He did so through uh, what's known as a written shareholder resolution. Um, And so it raises really interesting questions about, you know, what is the purpose of a shareholder meeting when you have a company that is largely controlled by one individual? Um, and uh, and so I think that, you know, there's some really interesting questions here about corporate governance. What is the role of an independent director when you have a family-controlled company, when you have a chairman who is not independent? Um, and I think that's why this story so captivated Bay Street. This um,
1: drama um, was set against a uh this large business deal at the time that Rogers was negotiating with um, uh, the one of the other telecom giants Shaw Cable or Shaw Communications, I should say, in April Rogers uh, completes its takeover. I think it's twenty six billion dollars. worth. What's been the impact of that merger for consumers?
2: Yeah, the really interesting part of this whole feud was the fact that it was playing out, as you mentioned, against the backdrop of this $20 billion takeover. And this takeover was really, really significant for Rogers because, you know, when Rogers was starting out and Shaw was starting out, um, Ted Rogers and J.R. Shaw essentially carved the country into East and West. And so you have Rogers uh, becoming the dominant player in the East and Shaw becoming the dominant player in the West. And so uh, it's important to keep in mind that the cable footprints uh, of Rogers. Rogers and Shaw don't really overlap, right? They're kind of each keeping to their own side of the country. And so um, a lot of the kind of regulatory concerns and the competitive concerns around the merger actually had to do with the fact that Shaw had acquired a wireless carrier Called Freedom Mobile, uh, and Freedom Mobile was Canada's, or still is rather, Canada's fourth largest wireless carrier, and was seen by everyone as kind of the scrappy competitor, right? They ran a lot of ads where they were sort of, you know, mocking the three player oligopoly and saying like, you know, we're the good guys, we're driving prices down. Um, And in fact, they were kind of seen as a competitive force in the Canadian telecom landscape. And so when, you know, Canadians and politicians found out that Rogers had this plan to acquire Shaw, a lot of the concern was, are we going to let this fourth wireless carrier be acquired because then we'll have one Less wireless competitor in Canada. And in the end, even though Rogers initially did think that it was going to be permitted to acquire Freedom, uh, it ended up divesting Freedom. Hmm. And so um, Freedom was acquired uh, by Québécois, uh the owner of Videotron.
1: You said um, the word good guys, and I think if I went out on the streets of Toronto, Saskatoon, Victoria, Ica- somewhere in Iqaluit and asked any Canadian uh, what they think of telecom companies, rarely is someone who say, yeah, I think they're one of the good guys. In other words, <laughs> Canadians are very frustrated with um, their telecoms, and just to put you know, some number on that. In 2022, uh, there was a survey um, done by a market research company, Polaris Strategic Insights, found 59% of Canadians said that they get angry or annoyed when they think of telecom companies. They they might not even be looking at their bill. What is behind that frustration of most Canadians?
2: I think it's a couple of things. Um, Obviously, there is the prices. People are very unhappy with the prices they're paying. A lot of people have traveled outside of Canada and seen, you know, what the prices look like in other countries. So I think the price is a big component of it. I don't think it's the only aspect, I think uh, customer service is a really big source of frustration. If you look at um, complaints to the telecom ombudsman, um, you see that there's a lot of uh, customer service issues that people are not able to resolve with their telecom provider, which then ends up sometimes being escalated to the ombudsman. And this is probably just a small fraction of the frustrated customers because a lot of people don't even know that we have a telecom ombudsman. Did not know till right now. (laughs) Well, there you go. Um, And so, you know, we do often see the number of complaints being received by the ombudsman going up. um, And so that does give you a sense that, you know, there's a lot of issues, consumer, um, customer service issues that simply are not being resolved by the companies. You
1: know, I mentioned that survey from 2022. Um, At that time, uh, it showed that telecom bills ranked as the third largest cost of living pressure on Canadians. You mentioned how expensive our cell phones are in this country. I think it's second highest in the world just after South Africa. Um, Cell phone plans here are 30% higher than compared to the United States. Why is it so expensive here?
2: (laughs) It's a great question. You know, if you ask the telecom companies, they will tell you that it's because Canada is a very large country with a very, very large and sparsely populated country. So they have a lot of physical distance to cover in wiring up the country. I mean, just laying wire, essentially,
1: laying the the ability to communicate.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, I guess, more expensive in a larger country where you don't have um, as many people to offset that cost, right? So if you look at the population of Canada versus the population of the United States, you just have a much larger uh, customer base to kind of offset some of those costs. Um, and then, of course, we do also have um, higher spectrum costs that the, co- that the companies have to pay in order to get those licenses for wireless spectrum. So some of those costs uh, get passed on to consumers as well. Who determines that cost? That would be the government.
1: Okay. So you said the companies will tell you this, Pia. What's your assessment of why uh, it's so expensive here? Like, well, do you agree with that assessment that the companies give you?
2: Um, I mean, I think that that does for sure factor into our wireless prices. Um, you know, a lot of people will say that there's just simply uh, not enough competitors in Canada. And I think that's an interesting argument. If you look at Canada and the U.S., for instance, we have three major wireless carriers. The U.S. has three major wireless carriers, despite the fact that they do have a much larger population that we do. Um, They had four wireless carriers for a while, and that actually changed. We've seen consolidation in the U.S. uh, with AT&T acquiring Sprint. Um, But but a really big difference between the two markets is in the U.S., there's this proliferation of what are known as MVNOs. Um, And these are essentially uh, mobile um, virtual network operators. So they're Wholesale-based competitors, so they don't own the networks that they're riding on. They're mm. leasing network space for from the bigger the bigger carriers. Um, And so those provide a lot of kind of lower cost options uh, for consumers. We do not have that same proliferation of MVNOs here in Canada um, for reasons that, honestly, I've never been quite able to unpack why the sort of MVNO market has not taken off to the same extent here in Canada. Um, We do have new rules from Canada's telecom regulator that actually requires the big wireless carriers to open up their networks to certain MVNOs, um, but only really the facilities-based uh, regional competitors. Yeah,
1: because it was last year the CRTC ordered um, Bell and Telus to give competitors in Ontario and Quebec um, cheaper access to their network infrastructure. The idea behind this is, hey, give consumers more affordable options. Bell's been fighting that ruling. It's listed as one of the reasons of its restructuring for the company. So what meaningful attempts are being made by the federal government to get pricing under control?
2: Well, I think the one that you just listed, but yeah, there is always this tension, right, between encouraging competition and encouraging investment in networks, right? And so the challenge that the government and the regulators face is to try to get that balance right. Because if you, for instance, require the large telecoms to offer um, access at very low cost, then they will say, well, it's not worth it for us to make these investments because mm-hmm. you know they're public companies, they have public shareholders, and they're expected to get a certain amount of return on the major investments that they make. On the other hand, if you don't require them to offer you know, access to competitors, like, why would they, right? And so this is kind of a big source of tension um, that they, you know, they being regulators in the government always have to kind of keep in mind.
1: Fascinating beat you covered and great book. Thank you for it. And thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Alexandra Posadsky is a telecoms reporter for The Globe and Mail. She has a new book out. It is called Rogers v. Rogers, The Battle for Control of Canada's Telecom Empire. You're listening to The Sunday Magazine on CBC Radio, Sirius XM 169, as well as on the CBC Listen app. I'm Pia Chattapadai. Dr. Jen Gunter is known for cutting through the BS and taking on those who peddle misinformation. She's done it through her books about the vagina and menopause, as well as on her blog, The Vagenda, as well as on social media. Well, now the Canadian OBGYN and pain medicine physician is zeroing in on something that's a routine part of life for about half the population. Even so, as she says, still carries stigma and shame and that can lead to dire health consequences. Her new book is called Blood, the Science, Medicine, and Mythology of Menstruation. Dr. Jen Gunter, hi. Hi, thanks for having me. If I was talking on the radio, maybe even as short as a decade ago, I'd probably give some kind of heads up to our audience saying, um, hey, we're, we're about to talk about menstruation. In other words, we are talking more openly about menstruation It's not as taboo as it once was. I want you to make the case for us. Why do we need to be talking about menstruation in 2024?
3: Yeah, well, first of all, we're all here because of it. Human evolution depended on the menstrual cycle. It demanded it. So we've all benefited in that way. But for the people who menstruate, they are the half of the population that's more likely to experience poverty. They are people who might have period poverty and have difficulty attending school or work, and so they're affected by that but they're also affected by the taboos and the shame. If you don't learn how your body works, then you don't know when your body's causing a problem. That makes it easier than for healthcare providers to dismiss you, or it makes it easier for you to fall victim to snake oil salespeople. So the ability to talk about menstruation is the first step in the ability to educate about the menstrual cycle. And I think people deserve to know how their body works.
1: There are a million euphemisms for menstruating, I don't even want, they, may, they mostly make me cringe, so I don't want like <laughs> time of the month might be the only one that I'll say out loud. What do you think of the language we often use to talk about menstruating?
3: So euphemisms, you can think about them in two ways. One, I think they're very bad for when we're discussing menstruation seriously as a society, as medical professionals, this idea that we have to say the monthly or monthlies or that time of the month or things like that, where we're dancing around it. When well, you can't say the word, it implies that it's shameful, right? So that's part of that shame. And that's where those euphemisms come from. That happened to me when I was in you know, grade eight class and I needed to change my pad. And when I told my teacher I had my period, he just about like, he looked like he'd seen a ghost. Like I'd said something, like I'd cast a spell on him, you know? (laughs) So that's wrong because that implies it's, you know, it's dirty, it's shameful. However, on the flip side, I do love how women have come up with these fantastic, creative euphemisms that are in many ways way more graphic than saying I'm bleeding. And that's kind of like subversive. So I think it really depends on the context. If you're trying to be subversive, Go for it. If you're trying to educate, Stick with the correct terminology. Okay, two things. One, what's your favorite one? Uh, Well, there's communists in the (laughs) funhouse. And two,
1: why do you want people to be subversive when we're we're discussing this?
3: Well, I think that's basically, you know, giving the finger to the patriarchy. That's like, okay, we're going to take what you're imposing on us and we're going to twist it in such a way it just shoots it right back at you and it's way worse. I mean, my other favorite one is, you know, the English are coming. Oh my God. (laughs) Like red coats, right? (laughs) Um, And Dr. Gantry, you
1: make this argument though, like it's not just about the taboo, the shame, uh, it's about accuracy, but there's also, when we talk about this in these euphemistic sort of ways, that there's a direct link to the
3: health consequences. Yeah, absolutely. So it's astounding to me that every time I talk about menstruation, one of the first questions I get is, well, how much blood is normal? And this is from people who've had their period for years think about the fact that most people don't know what's concerning. I didn't know when I first started and I had catastrophically heavy periods. I suffered with anemia for several years, six, seven, eight years before I got treatment because I was just told that was normal. And you, when you start using words like the curse, well, then you're like, okay, well, I leaked all over my bed. I guess I see why they call it the curse, mm. right? As opposed to thinking, hey, my blood, my I was bleeding with large clots and soaking the beds, that's a sign of abnormality. I mean, 40% of women who menstruate up to the age of about 22 are iron deficient. Like, that's a real problem.
1: So can you just help us out here medically? Because I think some people are hearing you, but saying, well, what is a quote unquote normal period?
3: Yeah. So a normal period, a medically normal period would last for 7 days or less of bleeding. It will happen every 24 to 38 days. Understanding you can have a wild swing of up to 7 days cycle to cycle. A lot of people think, "Oh, my period should be like clockwork." Nope, it's it's not a it's not an atomic clock. So you might have 25 days one cycle and 30 days the next cycle. Totally normal to have that variation. From a flow standpoint, if you're having clots that are larger than a quarter, if you feel like gushing when you stand up, if you're leaking through pads or tampons more than every one to two hours, or you're soaking onto your clothes or bed sheets, those are times that are, those are objective signs that your bleeding might be heavy. But I also tell people, if you think your bleeding is heavy, I also take that as a sign it needs to be investigated. Go to the doctor if you have one in yeah, this country. Absolutely. And, you know, If you feel your periods are heavy, the minimum that you need is a blood test to see if you have anemia and iron deficiency, not just a test for your hemoglobin. You also need a test for iron. It's called ferritin.
1: Okay. That's helpful for a lot of people out there. Um, In your book, you wrote that the original sin of menstruation myths is that menstrual blood contains toxins, Mm -hmm. and the cycle is a sort of detoxifying waste removal system. I got to say, I still sort of think of it that way. And so I I just throw that out there. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, your body is doing what it does through its cycle. But unpack this myth and why you believe it is still so pervasive.
3: Yeah. So the myth is from before we understood anything about bodies, you know, the time of Hippocrates, when we thought about the humors, right? Black bile, yellow bile, all those things, and everything was in balance. So they they didn't know medicine as we do. And so menstruation was viewed as basically an overflow system, uh, because women's bodies were inferior. And this is how they managed all their toxic humors, right? Men were in perfect balance, so they (laughs) have to manage their toxic humors, right? So um, that has really persisted throughout the years. People have linked vampirism with menstruation. They've linked rabies. They've linked, you know, they've thought that women could wilt crops or wilt plants. I'm like, okay, don't you think they would have used that superpower? (laughs) That
1: superpower, exactly. To to like
3: get control of governments, but okay. Um, And then, you know, even today, so the reason why it's not gone is one, we don't talk about it and how ridiculous it is. Two, it's not that far removed. In the 1970s, there were still publications writing that men, women who are menstruating could wilt flowers. I mean, mm-hmm. come on. But look on social media. There is a chiropractor with a huge following on Instagram who has posted that the menstrual cycle is a detox and gets rid of toxins. Humans don't have toxins, we, so you can't get rid of one, get rid of them. And the menstrual cycle doesn't rid your body of impurities. That's what your kidneys and your liver do. Okay.
1: Also very good to know. I want to ask you about um, birth control pills. Mm -hmm. Um, So lots of people have been on birth control pills Mm -hmm. for birth control reasons, but also because it regulates your cycle. You know when your period is going to show up if you're on the pill. And when we talk about these kinds of hormonal contraceptions, there's this notion also from some quarters that the pill sort of interrupts or disrupts a so-called like innate sense of of the body. How should we think about that relationship between birth control pills and our periods?
3: Well, first of all, if anyone's talking about the innate sense of the body, then I would say, well, I mean, cancer is innate sometimes, you know, kidney disease, all these things are innate. So what do you, what does that even mean? So that's, that's someone taking purity culture and changing it in such a way to get attention and a lot of wellness and alternative medicine depends on the language of purity culture hmm. pure clean natural return to the unspoiled state that's a really offensive term there's all this tie in with virginity and keeping your body pure so that that bothers me on that kind of you know visceral level There are, you know, no studies that tell us that that there's any concern about the pill from that standpoint on the menstrual cycle. If the pill had a problem, then pregnancy would have a problem. None of them ever seem to be concerned about the fact that you don't menstruate during pregnancy either, right? Hmm. The pill was designed in the same way that pregnancy works. It suppresses the signaling from your brain due to a hormone called progesterone. And with the pill, it's hormones called progestins. And it just shuts it down because that's how the body shuts down ovulation. Otherwise, you'd keep ovulating during pregnancy and you could get pregnant then again and again, and that would actually be bad for your pregnancy, right? (laughs) Yeah. So I would tell people that When anyone's using purity language, be on the lookout for it and be very mindful of that person as a credible source. The birth control pill is fine to take. If you don't wanna have a period, great. You don't have to have one. You can just take it continuously. It's not that there's any lining then that builds up. You can just take it and not have a period. If you like having your period, you can take it so you have a period. I'm all for freedom of choice when it comes to menstruation. Except
1: for, and I'm, I'm thinking of this it's somewhat recent like trend on social media, TikTok mm-hmm. uh, mostly, where women who have ditched the pill are sort of out there you know, making videos, urging others to do the same in favor of tracking their cycle. So I asked this question with, with that sort of context. Is there any downside to being too hyper aware of
3: one's menstrual cycle? Absolutely. So this is called the quantified self. And we've actually seen with sleep trackers, people developing anxiety and having worse sleep because of that. So there's this idea that you need to be in tune with your menstrual cycle. I don't know. Nobody ever says you need to be in tune with your kidneys or your liver. So first of all... (laughs) Assigning some kind of special function to the menstrual cycle really bothers me. It's just a physiologic process. It doesn't need to be deified or put on a pedestal. Like, this is just part of your body. But the other issue is these trackers have real concerns associated with them. So most of them sell your data. Okay, If you happen to live in some parts of the United States, that could be used against you if somebody thinks you're having an abortion. It costs about $100 to buy a week's worth of metadata to see who went to a Planned Parenthood. Wow. Yeah. Now, it goes beyond just like, you know, you talk about a dress and there were shoes, and then all of a sudden your Instagram feed shows you those shoes, right? Like, that's really creepy. But then imagine, okay, so you live somewhere where abortion is legal. Imagine then if employers start buying your metadata to see when your last period was because they didn't want to hire someone who's pregnant. We don't know what malignant things people are going to do with your metadata, right? So there's that issue. But then there's also a study that tells us that people who track their periods actually become less in tune with their body. And the reason for that is the algorithms with these period trackers are proprietary. So we can't study them. We don't know how accurate they are. So they took a group of women who were menstruating, and then when and they were using an app, and when their period came at a different time from the app predicted, they blamed themselves. They said, "Oh, my periods' early or my periods late." When researchers plotted out their menstrual cycle, it was the app that was incorrect.
1: um you mentioned abortion, and I want to talk to you more about that because you write about this in uh, a chapter in your book. Um I don't think people always connect like menstruation to Abortion, like not high on the list of things when you're sort of connecting. What is the connection as far as you want us to know and able to better understand it?
3: Well, I would say we used to, back when abortion was illegal, um, you know, call it menstrual management or bringing on a period. You know, that was a euphemism. And women with money could afford to go to the doctor and have a menstrual extraction, right? And as long as the nurse and the doctor were quiet about it, there weren't ultrasounds or pregnancy tests, right? So, I wanted to kind of bring that sort of full circle and to sort of democratize access to information about your body. Unplanned pregnancies are a very still very common in our society and if people learn more about all aspects of their menstrual cycle as well as options for abortion, then they have a better chance at, you know, getting the healthcare that they need. I also wanted people to to read about the impact of maternal mortality when it comes to illegal abortion. You know, when they're learning about everything else, they people need to learn the ramifications of not having access to safe abortion, and also, especially in the United States. And I, you know, really decided I had to expand on this because I live currently in the United States, and uh, there are many states where getting an abortion is illegal. And I thought, you know. Word of mouth is also important. You know, people getting back to what we talked about trackers, if you research abortion online, they can track that down as well as your metadata, right? They look at your internet searches. But if your friend tells you about something they read in a book, that's not trackable in that way, right? If you read it in a book in a library, that's not trackable. Mm -hmm. And so I just want everybody to have access to all the information because that's how you make an empowered healthcare decision.
1: You're, you're a doctor. You cover many things. But if I say the name Jen Gunter, some people might say, oh, uh, the doctor, the period doctor. Like, I don't know how they're going to describe it. It's something like the sassy doctor on social media. There's lots of things. I, and I do want to talk a little bit about you and how sort of you've come to where you are and who you are. You grew up in Winnipeg. Um, and when you were in high school, uh, Dr. Henry Morgenthaler um Opened a clinic in your hometown for people who don't know who Dr. Henry Morgenthaler was, um, abortion rights advocate um, at the forefront of making access to abortion in our country. What kind of impact did that opening of the clinic have for you? So you're like a teenager when yeah. this opens.
3: So I was a teen, and it was all on the news. You know, Henry Morgenthaler was opening a clinic in Winnipeg, and I don't think I'd paid that much attention to it before that had happened because you know you're a teen. You know, you don't think about what's happening in Ontario or Quebec, right? You just sort of think about your own hometown and. Curiously, even though my parents were very conservative, they were very pro choice. And because they, they were like, nobody should tell you what to do with your body. And so my parents were, you know, were vigorously watching, you know, the news on the CBC about this. And I just kind of thought, well, yeah, you're right. And when they opened the clinic and there were all these protesters, I thought, well, I'm gonna go down and support them, and so I, you know, I was in grade 11, and I got on my 10 speed bike, and I, you know, <laughs> rode down to the clinic, and you know, stood with people, and um, you know, I just felt like it was important to do, and I, I didn't know that it was, you know, so unusual for a 16 year old to do that, but you know, the news coverage and hearing, you know, hearing Henry Morgenthaler's words, like you know why, you know, him talking about why this mattered, just I was like, yeah, you're you're right, no one should tell you what you can do with your own body. It's your own body. And so, yeah, it just, it just had a really big impact on me, and it was really from seeing it in the news. I'm going to come back to My Body, My Choice uh, in
1: just a bit. But before we get there, because this kind of is your trajectory. So then, as you said, that you now practice in the United States. Um, you also spent some of your earliest professional years in, in Kansas, um, where you had firsthand experience dealing with restrictive abortion laws in that state at that time. And so how did that inform you Like, here we are in 2024, as you say, lots of states have abortion is now illegal, given the striking down of Roe v. Wade. But what was that experience like for you as a young doctor, uh, as a woman, um, and how you sort of looked at what you now do, like how you sort of thought of it back then?
3: Yeah, so, you know, I was incredibly well-trained at the University of Western Ontario, and that included, you know, training and doing abortion at really all gestational ages, um, incredibly well-trained. And so when I moved to Kansas, I I didn't know at the time. I I kind of thought the Midwest in the States was the same as the Midwest in Canada. You know, and Winnipeg's a pretty liberal place, so I was a a little bit shocked um, and really surprised that, you know, I joined faculty at the University of Kansas. And... um, you know, I, there was only one other person on this whole big university faculty that did abortions. And he was like, you know, I don't want to call him an old guy, but, you know, he was kind of one of these people that was close to retirement and he remembered back in the day. And I just was struck by that. Like, I was like, what? And nobody talked about it. And, and it was like, you didn't talk about doing abortions, you just kind of did them secretly. And I was like, what are you even talking about? Mm-hmm. Like, it just was so weird to me. I got a call from, you know, another physician about a very sick woman who absolutely needed an abortion. And I'm like, well, I can't do it. I'm sorry. Like the law says, no, Uh, you need to call the hospital attorneys. The end result was uh, the hospital attorneys decided I should talk with the politician who crafted the law. And so they patched me through to this politician and I started to make my case, you know, hi, I'm Dr. Jen Gunter. And I maybe had said five words and he said, oh, well, whatever you think is best, doctor, just do it. Mm. And I was like, oh, so whatever I think is best, then why do we have a law? And that's when I, you know, I you don't really think a lot about politics in medicine until you're stuck thinking about politics in medicine. And that's when I realized none of these laws were about life or some perverse belief about life. They were all about getting votes. And it's about nothing brings out the vote in some parts of the country than um, than blaming women for being pregnant and vilifying women as you know being you know hussies or you know whatever you know whatever old timey language I think these people are thinking of and yeah it's um, you know degrading women gets votes. So for you, periods are political. Yeah, it's periods are political, and you can't you have to know all the basic you know the basics to know where you are. You have to know your history to know where you are, and knowledge is power. And I don't think that that's more accurate for any other area of medicine than reproductive health.
1: I want to come back to the My Body, My Choice, because I think it's an important sort of slogan um, that has been borrowed and or co-opted, however you want to look at it, um, It in, in very modern times. So if we think about COVID right. and the pandemic, that was sort of said, like, you can't tell me what to put in my body. Do you see
3: any sort of connection or morphing of that kind of language? Um, No, I think that's um, a perversion of my body, my choice. Um, It's a perversion of public health. So, you know, if we didn't have public health, then we would say it's okay for, you know, People with multi-drug resistant tuberculosis to go sit on, a, you know, a tram and infect everybody because of incredible public health measures. Well, you know, measles is coming back again. I heard there were a couple of cases. I think in Quebec, um, somebody just died in Ireland. But because of public health measures, where we say, look, no man is an island. You are have a potential to affect somebody else's health that is a very different message than you get to govern what happens to your own body. So I think that's just a, a purposeful perversion. Um, and, you know, I think see what those people are trying to do as poorly as they're trying to do it. And
1: you'll have none of it, Dr. Yes. Gantry. <laughs> I want to ask you about a development connected to women's uh, health. Well, two things. This historic study first out of Scotland last month that found no cases of cervical cancer detected in a cohort of young women who were fully vaccinated against HPV, human papilloma virus. And then Canada has set a goal to eliminate cervical cancer, which HPV can lead to. Uh, By 2040, kids in their early teens can get an HPV vaccine in most provinces now through their school immunization programs. What was your reaction to that? um, And what needs to happen for our country to reach that goal of 2040?
3: So I would say that the HPV vaccine is a cancer moonshot. Everybody talks about cancer moonshots and we have one. The fact that people aren't embracing it is incredible to me as someone who has seen people die from cervical cancer or had awful conditions related to it. I see people who still unfortunately get, you know, diagnosed late for whatever, you know, health inequities and all kinds of reasons. And I see them because they have catastrophic damage from radiation to their vagina, right? And so I'm the person who fixes that Mm -hmm. and, uh, or tries to, it's very difficult to fix. Um, And the fact that people would deny that to me is, is so difficult to understand. When I was a medical student, we just barely understood that maybe HPV had a role in cervical cancer. We didn't really get it at all. And now we can we can prevent it from happening. It should be a requirement to get the vaccine We have a duty to our citizens, and it is incredibly safe. And the idea, it has become so fraught because the anti-vaccine movement, which I would like to call the pro-death movement, really, and the pro-cancer movement, has decided to weaponize fertility concerns, you know? If this wasn't a vaccine related to a sexually transmitted infection, I think it would be a whole different discussion. But this idea that it's going to encourage young people to have sex, well, nobody worries that, um, that teaching young kids how to wear a seatbelt is going to encourage them to drive dangerously. You can't have 80% of the population vaccinated. You can't have 90%. You have to say, we're going to require it as, you know, for every single person going to school, that private schools are not exempt. Um, And it's going to be a difficult sell because in, you know, some places now, you know, they're allowing people to opt out from, you know... Education about sex ed, which is probably even cursory at best. So if you can opt out of education, I can imagine there's going to be a lot of opting out of vaccinations. Too. So
1: BC, I think I don't know if it was last month or the month before, but introduced um, at home yeah. um, mail-in tests for cervical cancer screening. Lots of Canadians don't have doctors, yeah, so they're not going to a doctor to go get this done. And BC said, look, we think we can get better uptick yeah.
3: a- at home. How big of a change game changer do you think this might be? I think it's a huge game changer. You know, the technology for detecting HPV has improved dramatically. We know that people can do the test themselves and it's as good as a collection in the office. Think about, you don't have to take a day off work. You don't have to worry about childcare. You don't have to worry about the cost of gas. You don't have to worry about your doctor being sick and canceling the appointment that day and you've already driven halfway there. You're, you live in Churchill, Manitoba, or you live in downtown Toronto. If we had universal HPV testing, everybody would have health equity.
1: I have to let you go, but I want to ask you. I'm just using my household as a microcosm every- family and is different, but like, you know, I got these two little boys who are 10 and I got my 14 year old daughter who she'll hate me for saying this, but menstruates uh, and there's me and there's my husband. And you've read this, it's a lengthy book, Dr. Gunter. What do you want that conversation to sound like in homes when we talk about this?
3: Yeah. So I want people to be able to say the word menstruation without anybody getting a red face, you know, <laughs> so I want that first start. I want people to be able to talk about periods the way they talk about elbows or a sore knee or whatever. I want everybody to know how their body works. And I think you know the men in your household, the boys in your household should learn as well because they've profited from it. I have two 20-year-old boys. They know all this stuff because they've been around me writing and everything. And one of my sons, he's 20, and he's very openly gay. And he is very proud of the fact that he knows more about the menstrual cycle than a lot of his friends who are girls and that they come to him and ask questions. And isn't that what being a friend is all about, being able to help everybody? So- I don't know. I just, I want everybody to be able to understand what's going on with menstruation. I want partners, parents, spouses, kids to be able to support their family member or their loved one. And I want everybody to know what's happening to their body so they can seek care when they need, they can advocate for themselves, and they can avoid snake oil.
1: Thank you very much. It's a good, it's an important read. And I, you know, a lot of people who menstruate think we know so much about it. Then you read your book and you're like, wait a minute, I didn't know that. So <laughs> thank you for it. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Dr. Jen Gunter's new book is called Blood, the Science, Medicine, and Mythology of Menstruation.
0: I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history, not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It was another week of high drama in American politics. Democrats pushed back against an assessment by a special counsel that U.S. President Joe Biden is an elderly man with poor memory. On that same day, the U.S. Supreme Court started hearing arguments about whether the presumptive Republican nominee, Donald Trump, is eligible to be on the ballot in some states. And there was drama in Congress as well as a long-awaited immigration and foreign aid bill collapsed. All of it is being mixed into the political and partisan stew during a presidential election year. Tolu Olorunipa is the White House bureau chief for The Washington Post. Tolu, good morning. Hoo boy, what a week.
4: Good morning. What a week it has
1: been. (laughs) Let's start with a special counsel report. This was a culmination of a year-long investigation centering around Joe Biden's improper retention of classified documents during his years, sort of as U.S. Senator and Vice President, and some private time in that um, duration as well. It's important to say, Tolu, that no charges are being brought against the President, but the report talked at some length about Joe Biden's um, mental decline. It said that during interviews with investigators, Biden couldn't remember, for example, when he was a vice president. And just before I asked you, um, ask you this question, Tolu, I just want to play a bit of a uh, press conference Biden held. This happened just hours after the report being released. Here's just a bit of what Biden said.
4: A special counsel also wrote, the decision to decline criminal charges was straightforward. The evidence suggests that Mr. Biden did not willfully retain these documents. In addition, I know there's some attention paid to some language in the report about my recollection of events. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that?
1: Tolu, the president is 81 years old. He is an elderly man. But why do you believe he needed to come out so quickly, so forcefully, as we heard there, after the special counsel's report came out?
4: Yeah, he wasn't charged with any crimes, but he was charged with something that may be even more politically damaging, which is not being up to the task of being president. He had to respond to those charges, because those are probably even more damaging to him than criminal charges, in part because they play into this narrative that he's 81 years old, he's too old to run for a second term, he's the oldest president in history, and he cannot be in the White House for another four years, even though he is the nominee of his party for uh, the next term. And so he had to combat those charges, not the criminal charges, but the political charges that he is not up to the job, that not only is he not you know, mentally strong enough to be president, but he, in the words of the special counsel, may not even be mentally strong enough to carry out normal activities mm for a normal human being, because he couldn't recall dates, he couldn't remember when he was vice president. The picture that was painted of him was someone that was feeble, who was weak, who was not presidential in any understanding of that term. And so he had to combat that. He had to show some fire and some anger and some vitality, because a lot of voters are looking at him and thinking that he's too old to run for a second term.
1: The voters might also be looking at his you know, likely um, competitor, Donald Trump, who is 77 years old, only four years younger than Biden. And Trump has made a number of uh, mistakes or missteps recently, including confusing Republican challenger Nikki Haley with former Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So what's the difference here between Trump and Biden, Tolu, as you see it when it comes to concerns about age?
4: We've seen this in polling going back more than a year. Voters see Biden as old. They also realize that Trump is old, but they have less concern over Trump's mental ability, over his uh, physical uh, capabilities. For whatever reason, Trump just comes across as someone who's more strong, someone who has more energy, someone who is less, someone who's less uh, impacted by age. Now, people are still concerned about other things about Trump, including some of the Outlandish statements that he makes, some of the extremism that he embraces, and so age seems to be lower on the list of concerns that people have about Trump versus Biden. But Biden, between his physical appearance, some of his verbal stumbles, and this these questions about his mental abilities, age is the number one concern that we hear from voters about President Biden being the oldest president and running for a second term, which would not end until he was 86 years old. And so it's just a bigger challenge, a bigger liability for. President Biden, even though the age gap is not that large, it's a bigger risk for him to have someone questioning his age because it plays into this narrative that is already pre-existing, that he is too old to be president and he's going to spend the next nine months trying to combat that for voters.
1: Does it say anything to you? And if it does, what does it say to you? And about U.S. politics, your country, that both of these parties are dealing with concerns about the mental acuity of their candidate their nominee and presumptive nominee in the republicans case of their leaders they're they're both elderly guys
4: yeah we've had this issue in our country for quite a while where the leaders of both parties through whether it's seniority or whether it's sort of the generational thing have always been these elderly figures and now president obama when he came in he sort of was able to break that mold but you know in the last several years, we've had Trump as president, we've had an 80-year-old speaker of the House, we've had elderly people running the Senate, and so it's always sort of been a place where people who have risen up the ranks, have spent years or decades paying their dues in Washington, finally get to the pinnacle of power, and by the time they get there, they are potentially, you know, Having mental issues or having physical issues because they're at an advanced age, and so there is a you know a question about whether you know we should be looking for younger leaders. We've seen Nikki Haley, the challenger on the Republican side, try to make that generational argument, but it's not clear that that is working. People tend to vote for people that they know, and sometimes people that they know are people who have been in the limelight or in the spotlight or in the political realm for years or decades. And Joe Biden definitely fits that bill. He spent you know three. Uh, Three more than three decades in the Senate, and then he spent two terms as vice president. So altogether, he has had a public life in public service of more than 50 years. And Hmm. so he's been able to build up his name ID. People have gotten to know him, and that's how he ascended to the presidency. But while you build up that kind of recognition, you are getting older, you're spending more and more years in Washington, and you're coming into the presidency at an advanced age where age starts to become an issue for you in how you present yourself to the public.
1: The other substantive issue in all of this as it came out, and and you mentioned it, is the actual special counsel looking into classified documents. So in the Biden case, no criminal charges. The special counsel said Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified material after being VP when he was a private citizen, said criminal charges aren't warranted. In contrast, Donald Trump is facing 40 criminal charges, allegations for obstruction uh, and keeping of classified documents. There are people, Tolu, who are trying to, um, you know, say these two things are comparable, that they're the same, uh, allegations that Those same people are trying to muddy the waters. What do we need to further understand about the difference between the Biden and Trump situations here?
4: There's a very clear difference. I mean, the special counsel who was actually appointed to his initial role by former President Trump made it very clear that what Trump did was egregious and pretty extreme when it comes to withholding classified documents. Not only did he take classified, secure documents with him from the White House to his private club, which in some ways is a public club because other people can have access to it. But when, it, when he had an opportunity to give those documents back, he not only continued to withhold those documents, but he took efforts to obstruct the federal officials from getting those documents. Now, Biden, by contrast, when he realized that there were documents that he shouldn't have had in his home, not in a public place, but in his home, he Gave the FBI access to his home. He didn't have to be raided. He handed over everything that he saw that was classified and he cooperated with investigators. And so it's a very clear distinction between one president who decided to cooperate and hand everything over and another former president who not only didn't hand everything over, but tried to obstruct the investigation, tried to hide the documents, tried to hold on to them much longer than he should have. And that is why. He was charged with crimes, and that is why President Biden was not charged with crimes. But at the same time, the special counsel said another reason he didn't charge President Biden was because he didn't think he could convince a jury that Biden, being as old as he is, being sort of quote unquote well meaning and forgetful there it would be difficult to convince a jury that this person was willfully uh, obtaining and securing uh, classified documents and so In addition to saying that the cases are very, very different and that two presidents handled this very differently, the mental abilities of the two presidents was also compared and contrasted in a a way that President Biden and his team found gratuitous, found uh, unnecessary, and have so far found very politically damaging.
1: Except to say that that was sort of part of the special counsel's reasoning or explanation of there being no criminal charges, right? Like I've seen over the last couple of days, Kamala Harris comes out, Biden comes out, they're very forceful saying the special counsel had no business talking about this, except for, uh, you might argue to, I'm wondering where you stand on this, that part of the reasoning as he explained all the reasons why Biden isn't being criminally charged was his, as you say, how he would appear in front of a jury.
4: Yeah, that's a tough, uh, a tough question to answer, because, you know, if you're going to make the case that this was a case that could potentially be brought uh, with charges. And then you said the reason that you don't bring that case is because the person who you're considering charging would appear before a jury as you know forgetful and not willful in criminal activity. Then you have to bring the receipts. You have to say why this person would appear this way. And then you have to say that, oh, he couldn't remember certain things. He couldn't remember when he was vice president. And so you sort of can understand why the special counsel wanted to provide the examples that, you know, Biden's allies are now saying were over the top or were politically motivated. But at the same time, you know, you wonder if the 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 way that he presented the language, the way he presented the the, the argument about Biden was not tainted by politics. You know that President Biden has the biggest vulnerability in his age. And if you are using that in such an egregious way, it makes it very easy to cast that special counsel as being politically motivated because we all know that we're in an election year we all know the politics of this. And so by using the words that he used, by describing Joe Biden as a well-meaning elderly person with a poor memory, you're playing into this stereotype and you're giving a gift to his political opponents. It's hard to say that you know someone like Robert Hur, the special counsel who's known Washington, who knows the politics of this situation, would be uh, too naive to know what he was doing. So it's very difficult to know Uh, whether or not he was politically motivated, but it's very easy to cast him as that based on the words that he Mm. used.
1: If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Washington Post, White House Bureau Chief Tolu Olorunipa. Tolu, I want to stay in the legal realm because a lot of things happened this past number of days in the legal realm. Um, The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments uh, this past week about whether Colorado had the right to keep Donald Trump off the ballot um, because of Trump's role in the January 6th Capitol attacks, efforts to remain in power after losing the last election. Based on what you've heard so far of those arguments, how are you seeing this play out in court?
4: Well, it seemed like the Supreme Court was very willing to um, take a, you know, sort of uh, very pro-Trump stance uh, on on this case about whether or not he has access to the ballot. They were skeptical of these claims that, You know, not only did Trump engage in in an insurrection, but that the constitutional provision, which has never been used before, would apply in this instance. And so it seems like an uphill climb for the people who want to bar Trump from being on the ballot in these various states. It didn't seem like the Supreme Court was willing to take the step of saying that former President Trump engaged in an insurrection and therefore should be uh, disqualified from even being on the ballot in 2024. And they seem like they were more willing to potentially rule on a technicality and not really deal with the heart of the matter, which is whether or not the former president is an insurrectionist. And by sort of focusing on these technical matters, it seems like they are going to find a way to keep Trump on the ballot, not have to deal with whether or not he would be disqualified under this provision and leave a lot of liberals and a lot of people who are hoping to not even have the prospect of Trump coming back to the White House uh, as an option they would be very upset by what the Supreme Court seems willing to do. You have to remember that Trump appointed three members of the nine-member Supreme Court, so uh, there already seems to be an unlikely uh, reality that he would be disqualified by the very people that he appointed. But it seemed like from the arguments that this uh, case is an uphill battle for those people mm-hmm. who are trying to keep him off the ballot.
1: No matter what the U.S. Supreme Court rules, in this case, and I would argue many others in your country, um both sides of the aisle, tend to point fingers at it saying it's politicized.
4: Yes, we have never seen this level of sort of politicization of the Supreme Court where so many people have a lack of faith in what the Supreme Court is doing, in part because they believe that it's been taken over by ideologues, you know, by the fact that Trump was able to appoint three members to the court and swing the court to the right. You've had a lot of Uh, People worry that the Supreme Court has become just another branch of our political atmosphere. And so it does seem like no matter what happens, that this will be uh, interpreted as a political decision, not a decision based on the law. But I do think that, you know, we're going to have to move forward with the Supreme Court because it's going to continue to be a key part of key decisions in our political realm. Not only is is this case about, you know, Trump's access to the ballot being debated in the Supreme Court, but there's also you know, a potential debate about presidential immunity and some of the other cases that Trump faces. He's also wanting the Supreme Court to weigh in on his side in other criminal matters. And so it does seem like the Supreme Court will continue to be a key uh, issue for us in our politics mm-hmm. going forward, uh, not only ahead of the election, but also in the potential aftermath of the election where we have already heard that there could be challenges to the results of the election like we saw four years ago.
1: Let me ask you about one other thing. I was just sort of catching up on this midweek last week, and then everything else happened. This was um, uh, Republican and Democratic senators finally hammering out this bill on funding for increased border security. This bill is paired with funding for Ukraine and Israel. So after the senators agreed, Tolu, the Republican-led House refuses to even bring it up for a vote. Why would the Republicans tank a bill funding, more border security. They've made this such a big issue, such a key part of their attack on the Biden administration. So why tank
4: it? I've got a one word answer for you. Uh, Trump, Donald Trump decided that he did not want this bill to pass. And he started to make it clear that he didn't think that this bill was a good idea politically for his party. He essentially said that by passing a bill that would be bipartisan and that would help solve the border issue, that they would be giving the Democrats a pass on an issue that Trump wants to make a key issue in the campaign. He wants the images of chaos at the southern border to be um, images that are a political liability for Joe Biden. And if Biden could say, I worked across the aisle, worked with Republicans and Democrats and helped to solve this problem, then the 2024 campaign looks different than it looks right now. So it was a purely political calculation led by Donald Trump to have this bill tanked and it's clear that this is now going to be a political debate over who's at fault for the chaos that we're seeing in, at the southern border. Mm. Democrats will say Republicans tanked the bill that would have solved the problem. Republicans will say Democrats have had three years to solve this problem and they are the cause of the problem. And so immigration and border security is going to be a key part of the 2024 campaign with both sides firing shots at the other, trying to get the political Um, upper hand in an issue that is really impacting millions of Americans.
1: Meanwhile, um, Ukraine president Vladimir Zelensky keeps asking and saying, and other Western leaders support this. Look, we need the money. We need the money from the U S that money is not flowing to Ukraine as well as Israel's making that case as well. Um, so what does it mean for those foreign aid issues in the United States? Like, are they going to separate the border issue from this? I know there's a partisan desire on some side uh, to keep this together, but what happens to those foreign aid issues?
4: It does look like the, the Senate is, is willing to separate these issues and put you know, some of this foreign aid uh, different in a different category from the border debate, which has become so contentious. But it's not clear that that can pass the House. The House, which is led by Republicans, has really been skeptical about sending billions of dollars to Ukraine. They were the ones that insisted that that money be paired with new border measures. And now that they've rejected the border measures, it's not clear where things move forward with the foreign aid package. The Republicans have said that they are growing weary of continuing to send so much money to Ukraine. And even if there is a bipartisan majority for sending this foreign aid both to Ukraine and Israel it seems like the leadership in the house seems reluctant to move forward with this package and so we are at an impasse and the people that are really suffering are the Ukrainians who are sort of finding themselves victim to the political back and forth that we have here in the U.S. and it doesn't really lend itself to an easy solution. I don't think that um, there is a a world in which this gets resolved very quickly. So the Ukrainians may end up having to wait weeks or even months before they can get more funding from the U.S. and it may have to go through a few more cycles of chaos in our political atmosphere before the very real issues uh, on the battlefield in in Ukraine are aided by some uh, U.S. dollars that are uh, right now badly needed by the Ukrainians. Mm
1: i want to bring up one last thing kind of related to this, which happened last night. Uh, Donald Trump on the stump, uh, stumping out there, uh, brought up NATO and its funding and took a run at countries that don't uh, put up their commitments to NATO. I I think he was, you know, including Canada in that accusation and saying, you know, hey, Russians, if you want for the countries that don't pay up their NATO dues, like feel free to have. Have about it? Do I have that right? Is that basically what he said last night? And what's he getting at here?
4: Well, that's basically what he said. He's been hinting at this kind of language in the past, but this is the most extreme that he's, he's, he's gotten in terms of sort of saying explicitly that he would not only, you know, f- refuse to defend our NATO allies and partners if they don't, quote unquote, pay up, but also that he would encourage russia to go after them and so i think this is sort of a strongman tactic of saying he's a hard negotiator and that he would push these various countries to pay what they have pledged to pay and it seems like he's sort of putting that in, the, in that way but we've never heard a presidential candidate run away from u.s obligations like this in such an explicit manner and we have really seen you know democrats and the biden campaign really lean in on this and say, this is the kind of madman that you are potentially going to put back in the White House, someone who would put us on the verge of another war by walking away from our allies and allowing, or even encouraging Russia to march on European capitals. And so uh, I think this is, you know, more of what we're going to expect from Donald Trump, where he's saying the things that he was unwilling to say explicitly in 2020 and and, and during his first term. Now he feels free to say those things in a very extreme manner. And I would not be surprised if we hear more of that as we get closer to November.
1: What's the saying? One week is a long time in politics. We got nine months till November. Long way to go. Tolu, thank you very much. Appreciate your time as always. Thank you. Tolu Olorunipa is the White House Bureau Chief for the Washington Post. You're listening to the Sunday magazine on CBC Radio Sirius XM 169, as well as on the CBC Listen app, which you can listen to our show anytime on demand on that app. Morgan Campbell is one of Canada's best loved sports journalists, known for weaving together sports, race, culture, and politics. For 18 years, Morgan did so in the pages of the Toronto Star, and these days, he's a senior contributor. Contributor to CBC Sports. Well, now Morgan's turning his critical eye to his own kin. His memoir is called "My Fighting Family," and it chronicles Morgan's family's multi generational battles and grudges, as well as his experience growing up black here in Canada with a family that has deep American roots. Morgan, good morning.
5: Good morning, AP. Hey, I just learned something. What? The thing that I learned is that I'm one of Canada's best loved sports writers. I had <laughs> no clue based on the feedback I get from readers and bosses.
1: I think you write really um, important stories about sports through various lenses. That's what I love about sport, great sports journalism. There are others. You're, you're, you're not the only loved one in our country, I, Morgan, didn't, I, but, hadn't,
5: I didn't know I was one of them. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, everyone has a family story. Most of our families are interesting in, in, in some ways, but what was it about your family that you're like, yep, want to tell the world about it?
5: You realize, having read the book, that my family is full of characters. And so much of who my folks are, my parents, my grandparents, uncles, aunts, siblings, you know, I take for granted in the same way that my mom grew up. uh, Her father was a musician and all these like famous and semi-famous musicians would just pass through the house. But to her, that was Normal. So we look at that and say, man, these are some awesome stories. And my mom's like, "Ah, that was just my life. Sometimes you come home from school and Oscar Peterson's sitting on the couch talking to your parents. And so for me, part of it was like taking a step back and really realizing that the people around me, the people that raised me, the people that shaped me, were these great characters. Um, And at the same time, I sort of needed a change from what I was doing professionally I'd hit. Uh, sort of this glass ceiling uh, as, a, as a sports writer at the Toronto Star. Um, and I wanted to take on a greater challenge um, and flex my writing muscles, capital W, writing muscles.
1: This is the other thing that really stood out for me in your book. It's unvarnished, right? Like, you could have written all the great things about your family. You didn't. You wrote about the challenges. It's called My Fighting Family, after all. Um, the challenges uh, uh, of personalities and characters and relationships. When you told your family, uh, hey, I'm going to write, like, our." are truth, and they're not all going to be pretty, <laughs> wh- what, what did they say?
5: Well, one, I did write the great things about my family. Right, and what, most of the people that have read this book, most like a lot of the feedback that I've gotten so far is like people think my mom is awesome. And for those of you who are about to read the book, like my mom is a very strong person. So there's a <laughs> there's a point there's a scene in the book where she punches a guy out for for calling her all kinds of racial slurs. Like they're walking to school and he's harassing her, and she says, "All right, this is enough," and she knocks him out. And people admire that strength. But then there's later in the book where she has the strength not to knock out my her mother-in-law who deserved a punch right in the face. My mom was strong enough not to do it. It's like that Jackie Robinson type of restraint. And so I do say the pretty things about my family. The thing about my family is my family knows my family. Hmm. And so if I'm gonna tell a truthful story, especially about my dad's mom and my mom's dad, uh, I, I go to great lengths in this book to also show empathy for them, but. The people who know them also know them. So they're not going to read the book and say, this seems unfamiliar. And one of the things I wanted to explore in this book was the the process of learning to love people that you don't necessarily always like. You know, my family, we're grownups. They understand how that works.
1: I want to talk about your grandparents on both sides, your maternal and paternal ones. You describe in great detail the lives of of all of them, um, south side of Chicago. Just what was life like for them?
5: the thing to remember about my grandparents' generation is that they straddled the Great Migration. So of my four grandparents, I have two of them born up north and two of them born down south. So my mom's mom was born in a little town called Bunn, Arkansas, which I I think, according to the latest figures, has 12 people. (laughs) This is her hometown. And then uh, my mom's dad was born in Chicago. My dad's dad was born somewhere in Mississippi, but he grew up in Arkansas. And then... My dad's mom was born in Trenton, New Jersey, but her family had just left the South. They were on their way to Pittsburgh, and they had to get off the train uh, so that my, my dad's mom, Mary Gibbs, could be born. And so, you know, they grew up in this time of transition. And, you know, all four of these the people that would grow up to become my grandparents, you know, they they live in a Chicago that's very segregated, but the thing that's different about my mom's dad is that he grew up in a white neighborhood because his dad got a job at a lumberyard that was in this working-class white neighborhood, and the guy that owned the lumberyard also also owned a lot of houses in the neighborhood, and he rented a house to my great-grandparents, to the people that would become my great-grandparents, to the Jones family, and it didn't matter to the Joneses or to the uh, owner of the house in the lumberyard, that a black person was going to live in this house in West Pullman South Side Chicago where everyone else was white but it certainly mattered to the neighbors and so like that daily conflict like that struggle against your very neighbors right this is something that shapes my grandfather and so when my grandfather uh, gets to high school and eventually he meets my dad's mom so my dad's mom and my mom's dad do not get along and this is the the sort of the roots of the conflict that winds up echoing literally for six decades hmm. and it's all re- based on this perception that they that my dad's family who were working class and my mom's family, who are also working class, that they came from different social classes, because the Joneses, my mom's family, lived in a white neighborhood. That did not make them uh, bougie, did not make them rich. It was a working class neighborhood. It just happened to be a white neighborhood.
1: Yeah. And that sort of through line of your family helps shape you, Morgan. We'll talk more about you in a sec, but I want to talk about your mom's dad, Claude Jones. Sounds familiar to people It's because he was a very successful um, jazz musician. I think most people have heard him at some point. But for those who haven't, um, kind of feeling that picture, like, tell me more about Claude Jones' career.
5: Yeah, I don't know that he was famous, and and that's one of the things I get at in the book. He was well-known, but not famous. Like, if he was famous, he probably would not have thought to come to Toronto. He gets to the point... So my grandfather grew up playing piano, was a professional Pianist in Chicago and he would record like a lot of sessions. So there's certain songs that you might still hear on the radio today that he played on. Like It's In His Kiss by 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 Betty Everett. He's playing piano on that song. Uh, I'm So Proud by Curtis Mayfield and The Impressions. He's playing Celeste on that song. So he's the first person to hear on that song. He's the last person to hear on that song. You know, and, and he found ways to make a living, but he was never famous. Like you can't go to um, Spotify and go through the Claude Jones Library, right? Mm. Back when music stores existed, you can't go find a bunch of Claude Jones. CDs so he gets to the point mid 60s he wants to change from Chicago and again if he were super famous like the agents that wound up luring him to Toronto they they wouldn't have been able to afford him but uh, they knew that they could get him to Toronto based on what they were pay- paying and based on you know the kind of gigs he would get so he was open to that and so he winds up coming to Toronto in 1966 just for a gig And he falls in love with the place. He brings my grandmother and my Uncle Jeff, who's a lot better known as a musician. Uncle Jeff uh, plays bass. He was the bassist in Red Rider. If you go back and look at those old videos, there's Mm. one black guy. That's my Uncle Jeff. Won a Juno with Molly Johnson and the Infidels in uh, 1991, 92. But if he doesn't become a professional musician, if he does anything else with his life, like a lot of things happen very differently. And I don't know that we ever wind up in Canada.
1: And so you said, look, he came here for a gig. He liked Toronto. He liked canada what did, like what did he like what was the draw for him because of this context matters right
5: yes yeah, so for him they came to toronto toronto and chicago are both are, are similar cities in the sense that they're both right next to a Great Lake. You know, they both have uh sort of this industrial slash uh history and and, and and uh both are sort of known for like uh uh having big slaughterhouses, right? Chicago has back of the yards neighborhood and there were big industrial slaughterhouses there. Toronto was Hogtown because they used to slaughter hogs here. Things like this. So like those details are very similar. But you go from Chicago to Toronto in nineteen sixty six, like what you're gonna find too is a, a city that's very clean and very (laughs) friendly and uh, not as multicultural as it is today, obviously, but like to my grandfather's sensibility, very racially integrated Mm. in the sense that he could go where he wanted, live where he could afford and didn't have to take into account, you know, whether the white neighbors would try to run him out of his house. And so this this was all very refreshing to him. And that was part of, you know, what really uh, enchanted uh, my grandfather and later my grandmother about Toronto.
1: How do your parents get here? Why do they come?
5: One is that they were following my grandparents, but two, uh, they were young, they were married, they were thinking about having kids, but they were also going through all of this in the midst of the civil rights movement, like late 60s civil rights movement when things turn a lot more militant, in the midst of race riots in every American city you can name, uh, after Martin Luther King's assassination, after the election of, of of Richard Nixon, they start adding this up and they're trying to figure out is, is America ever going to follow through on its promise to black people on a timetable that would allow us to feel comfortable raising multiple kids here. Because you could have one kid and maybe pour all your resources into that kid to get that kid from point A to point B to adulthood, but like multiple kids was going to be a different challenge. And so they decided, you know, after the assassination of Martin Luther King and after the election of Richard Nixon, they said, we've had enough. Where do your parents live again? Toronto? Let's go. (laughs) And so they
1: went. (laughs) I'm Pia Chattopata, and if you're just joining us this morning, I'm speaking with sports writer Morgan Campbell. Morgan has a memoir out. It's called My Fighting Family, and it chronicles how his family with deep roots in Black America ended up in Canada. And then uh, Morgan talks about what it's like to grow up Black in suburban Toronto um, in the 80s. So let's talk about young Morgan Morgan. Um, You're starting school in Mississauga, Ontario. You met some other Black kids in the neighbourhood. But you found quite quickly, I think, from from, from reading y- your memoir, yourself culturally different than most of the other black families in the area. And I want you to walk me through that, because, again, this is a bad assumption that people have. And I've had it, too. It's like you're black in Canada and there is this shared experience, which I know there is to some degree. But you talk about sort of the diversity and the nuance of the differences.
5: Yeah. So I think what you're talking about is like my parents felt that more acutely at first than I did. You know, they come to Canada Late 60s, you know, their relatives are here. There are, you know, scattered other Black Americans here. There are a lot of draft dodgers here. Like, I've met people who came here as draft dodgers who turn out to be possibly cousins of mine, (laughs) right? (laughs) As big as that country is and as big as the world is, the world is still very small. But, like, you know, my parents meeting other Black people here, this is the first time in their life that they've been around, like, a critical mass of Caribbean immigrants. And, you know, for a lot of these Caribbean immigrants, this is the first time encountering African-Americans. So on the one hand, you're all black in suburban Toronto in the early 80s, late 70s. You just, you decide to try to make friends, but there is, uh, you know, a lot of friction. So my parents, even before they moved to Mississauga, when they lived at Graydon Hall, which you know, the Toronto audience will know, DVP and 401 area, they used to get on the elevator with this other black couple. They're all the same, not only just they're wearing this, of the same racial group, but at the same skin color. Like my parents, they're all Barack, they're both Barack Obama's color for, for people trying to <laughs> picture them. Visualize, right? yeah. yeah. And then the other couple, same shade, all cafe au lait, you know, <laughs> and uh, they would say, hello, hello. And that would be that. But they hadn't really engaged in conversation, and one day they started talking. And if you, like, my dad is not alive anymore, but if you heard my dad talk, you would never mistake him for a Canadian, for a Jamaican, for a Trinidadian. Like, his accent was 100% African-American vernacular English from the South Side of Chicago. And so they heard my dad talk, and they heard that accent, and the faces just went blank. And they realized, this guy's not one of us. Well, I've said that the whole rest of the time, they all lived in that building, that couple never talked to them again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Why, right? Yeah, more, help me understand this. Why is it important for uh, for Canadians to understand that there is such a diversity within what we often refer to as the Black community?
5: Yeah, because the Black community is actually a mosaic of a lot of different communities. And then even within those communities, right, there's diversity. It's, you know, and I I don't say this from the standpoint of like making things divisive or trying to set myself apart from rank and file black people, like people that know me know I don't play that game. And if you read the book, you know, I don't play that game, Mm. right? I'm not trying to signal to white people, hey, I'm not like them. I'm important. I'm exotic. I'm African-American. That has nothing to do with it. It does help to just recognize that people who all live here that have skin colors that fall within this range of phenotypes that we call Black have variety of backgrounds, a variety of experiences, variety of cultures. And the thing is, I have to explain this to you because I'm talking about Black people. If I was talking about white people, you would get it. Because if I tell white, Canadian that they're just the same as a white American, they will say, no, we're not. Hmm. If I tell a Scottish person they're the same as an Irish person, they will say, no, we're not. And they will get it. There's no further explanation needed. But somehow when we talk about Black people, I have to explain to you that my parents from the south side of Chicago don't have the same experience as my friend's parents that came from Ghana.
1: Let's probe this a bit further. I I, I take your point. There's diversity within diversity. And kind of painting a whole bunch of people the same way uh, is limiting for everyone and, and, and not great. When you go to US, Morgan, and people ask you where you're from, you say, my name is Morgan Campbell, I'm from Canada. Yeah. And when you're asked by a Canadian, where are, you, where are you from? You say, my name is Morgan Campbell, I'm from the United States of America, ma'am. <laughs> Why do you do that?
5: Usually because when people ask, it's a different question depending uh-huh. on where you are. So Americans want to know, like like when I went to university, went to Northwestern, which is right outside of Chicago, when people asked where you were from, they weren't asking about heritage, they just wanted to know where you grew up. Whereas People in Canada, if they knew I grew up in Canada, when they ask where you're from, they want to know heritage. So I grew up in Toronto, so when i met at Northwestern, yeah, my folks, like I have family on the south side of Chicago, but you asked me where I grew up, Mississauga, right next to Toronto. Um, but here, when people ask you where you're from, what they often mean is, where is your family from? Where are your parents from? Where are your roots? And so I say, American. That's why I do that. But sometimes I also put the question back to them. Do you mean where did I grow up or do, mm-hmm. you, do you want to know my background? Then I can give them a better answer.
1: This is the game many um, people of color
5: <laughs> yes. um, play. And, actually, and, you, and I actually don't mind playing it. If, if the person is asking me in good faith, yeah. I don't mind playing that game. It's fun to learn about, again, because to me, it's fun. It's fascinating to learn where different people are from and what brought them here. So when I ask that question, I'm not trying to put you in a box or, or, or force you to pass a test. I'm genuinely curious. Hey, what brought your folks here? That's a great story.
1: I always say it's about the venom behind the voice of the question. Right? Like <laughs> yes, I, I'm exactly. trying to assess: like, Why are you asking? What are you getting at? And is that the real question you want an answer yes. to? Yes. So that—that's that, a calculation. Um, you write about James Baldwin, and I want to talk about the classic essay of his, "The Fire Next Time." Small book, right? Yeah. But this um, had a huge impact on you. This particular Baldwin essay. Why?
5: What did it offer you? One, like that was the first book I read when I decided I was going to take up reading books as a hobby. I was already a reader before then. I hadn't even noticed it because my parents had gotten me this subscription to Sports Illustrated and I'd read Sports Illustrated all the time, but I didn't think of myself as a reader. And then at some point in 10th grade, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be a reader. I'm going to read books. (laughs) Uh, You know, and it also spoke to the, the themes I was getting really interested in. You know, as a 15 year old black kid, listened to a lot of hip hop, you know, and I had these parents again that, lived through the civil rights movement lived through these race riots uh had this really not just an academic or an abstract understanding but like a hands-on real-life understanding of how systemic racism worked how interpersonal racism worked um you know at 15 i'm fascinated by these topics now here comes this james baldwin book and you know it turned a light on for me one to hear him talk about the effects of racism in the sense that you know, when I asked my mom what it was about, she said, "Yeah, it's about what's going to happen if all this racism keeps spreading, and how black people are going to burn society down if this if something doesn't change." And um, there was that, which again fascinated me because you know, here I am, this fifteen year old listening to a lot of like Public Enemy and uh, X Clan, if you guys can remember, like really obscure pro black rappers. Like that's what I was listening to in grade ten. Mm. Um, but also, he talks about like the summer that he turned fourteen. And he decided that, like, he needed a gimmick because he looked around him, and like, fourteen was the age when the people he knew and the people he grew up around, when it would, when, when life would weigh on them, and it would become clear to them that, that uh, if they didn't have a gimmick, a thing, a hustle, he called it like the the long cold winter of life. Like, life was about to get really, really, really rough for them as black people because life was going to start foreclosing on your on your possibilities. And again, I made clear in the book, like, I didn't grow up like Baldwin. I didn't grow up in the hood. He grew up in Harlem. You know, I grew up in suburban Mississauga, but it still, like, really resonated with me. I superimposed the circumstances of James Baldwin's life on my own. It's like, mm-hmm. man, I need a, I need a gimmick, I need a thing. Yeah. Um, and so, and I'm 15 when this happens, so I'm thinking to myself, I'm already behind schedule, so I'll give myself <laughs> another year. By the time I'm 16, I better have my gimmick, uh-huh. you know? And, you know, by 16, I was, like, more into football than I had been in previous years. and But I didn't actually think of becoming a writer until, you know, maybe my last year of high school it was reading Baldwin that sort of set me on that path or made me realize I was on that path because I think Sports Illustrated put me on the path and Baldwin propelled me forward. Mm -hmm. So is your gimmick sports? In my brain, in my 17-year-old teenage brain, yeah. Sports was gonna be the thing that solved all my money problems. Uh, It vaulted me into a new uh, social class. I was gonna make the NFL. You know, People listening to this can't see me. I'm five foot seven. Right? So the chances, the real chances of making the NFL have always been slim. But at 17, I didn't realize that, you know, I was a good football player. I was good compared to my peers. So I thought that was what I needed. Um, and then writing was sort of secondary. Writing was with, you know, if, if football doesn't work out, I'll become a writer. Or when I retire from football, I'll become a writer. Or if I don't make the NFL and have to settle for the CFL, the CFL players tend to make regular person money. I might need a second job, so I'll write. So that's kind of where <laughs> I saw writing.
1: And then what you bring in your writing it is these two kind of things, right? Sports and writing. But then this third very large thing, which is Morgan Campbell and all the things we've been talking about. How are the things you learned about sports, about politics, about being Black, about having diversity within a Black community, like reflected in the way you approach sports journalism today?
5: Part of it, and it's not even as deep as the th- as 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 the issues that you touched on in in the preface to the question, part of it honestly is just because I am black and a human being hmm. right and you know I've played sports, but even if I didn't play sports at a halfway serious level, you know I was a bench warmer on the team at Northwestern, you know the the two years they won the big ten title back in the nineties. look close enough on the sideline, you can see me <laughs> right, but what all that did for me as a sports writer was that allowed me to keep front of mind that the people I'm dealing with are also human beings. They're not just athletes, they're not robots, they're not machines where I can just press a button and interesting quotes come out. But for black athletes especially who often just get boiled down to a set of stereotypes and that helped me see the humanity in people and helped me relate to people that I needed to talk to to get them to tell me my story so that's the 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 big thing um as a sports writer it's also in terms of uh like there's this one chapter in the middle of the book it's called um chicago 1992 equipment for living and in this chapter i'm going around these different places on the south side of chicago with my dad i'm about 15. it's the summer of 1992 and he takes me to these uh i need some clothes i need some shoes and he takes me to these shoe stores and these clothing stores And he pays, but he kind of stands back and he just observes. So what happens is every time you walk in the clothing store, there's a black person to greet you, ask you what you need. Anytime you have to go pay, an Asian person would show up at the cash register and that person would handle the money. And this happened at multiple places. So as we're leaving, you know, my dad starts drilling me. He's like, what did the people look like that greeted you at the store? All right. What did the people look like who took your money? Do they look like they come from here? They look like they come from 87th Street? No, they don't. All right. And now you got to ask yourself if you are comfortable shopping at places where they don't let the black people touch the money. Okay. And so back then, like I absorbed the lesson. I didn't talk back to my dad. I didn't try to tell him what he was telling me, you know, he was schooling me and I had to sit back and listen, but like bigger picture, what it drove home to me is that there is a bigger context for everything. And like the fact that racism and segregation and structural racism and like, for lack of a better term, like habitual racism can shape all kinds of things Mm -hmm. from where you live to the car you drive to the interest rate you get to the price you pay for a pair of sneakers and that that holds your money and who holds your money. So that also like all of that also affects the sports industry and the culture of sport. So those two things kind of shape and and drive uh, what I have done as a sports writer.
1: That story you just told and that you write about in the book is one of many that seem like small stories. And if you're not paying close enough attention, you can keep them in that small story. But as you say, they say big things. And throughout your book, you explain sort of the differences between racism in the U.S. and the racism in Canada. But you also write about how Canada gave your family a chance. And I'm not asking you to tie a nice little bow around Canada, <laughs> but but I think it's an important part to make, the, the distinction and also why it, you felt it important to say Canada gave my family a chance.
5: Mainly because like these discussions of racism tend to fall on like dichotomies. Is this place racist or is it not? Whereas racism is more of a spectrum, right? It's more of a continuum. And where does Canada fit on this continuum? Because the truth is, if you're a black person, Anywhere in the world, and you have to live someplace where most of the people are white, you are going to encounter racism somewhere on that spectrum. And Canada is not different. Like, Canada, we like to tell these stories that make ourselves feel good about racism because Canada was the terminus point on the Underground Railroad. Canadians, we feel good about that, right? I'm here in Montreal, where Jackie Robinson played uh, his first season of minor league baseball before he went to the Dodgers. And Canadians, we like to remind ourselves that, you know, we had integrated baseball a year before Brooklyn did, but that doesn't mean Canada's not a racist place. So, many of that, so much of that is just happenstance. And so it was important to me to highlight the fact that like, my parents left a lot of uh, racism behind when they left the United States, but they did not leave racism behind.
1: This book is really, um, I think, the context of it and the bigger story that it tells is, is um, really important for Canadians. So thank you. Um, I always appreciate you, Morgan.
5: Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you too, Pia.
1: Morgan Campbell is a longtime Canadian sports journalist who currently is a senior contributor with CBC Sports. He has a new memoir out that is called My Fighting Family Borders and Bloodlines and the Battles That Made Us. All right, that's it. For us here this week on The Sunday Magazine, our producers are Levi Garber, Brianna Goss, Andrea Huang, Adam Killick, Pete Mitten, and Ironde Williams. We had additional help from studio director Susan McReynolds. Our senior producer is Howard Goldenthal. Our executive producer is Brian Colton. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for lending us your ear. Till next Sunday.